You're listening to Eco Thoughts, a podcast expanding the conversation on the biodiversity and climate crisis with aesthetic, ethical, historical, and cultural perspectives. In this episode, you'll listen in on a talk and panel discussion with the American political theorist Jane Bennett. We're at the Royal Danish Library in Copenhagen, in a building called the Black Diamond, where Jane Bennett is about to give a talk on the theme of ecological actions. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. Um, I want to thank also the University of Copenhagen and the city of Copenhagen for sharing your worlds with me these last few months. It's been a really lovely, wonderful stay. Bennett has been in Copenhagen as a visiting professor and her talk is followed by a discussion with a panel consisting of local activist and public speaker Emma Holden, as well as the scholars Lars Tønder and Melissa van Drie. So I'm keen to get the conversation going. Let me just start. Bennett has a slideshow behind her with the alluring title, Energetics of Eco-Enchantment. And here's sort of the plan. It's got six short sections. Let me just start right in with the first one, Wake Up and Change. In November of 2018, when she was 15 years old, the climate activist Greta Thunberg responded to critics who said that she, quote, should be in school instead, that she should study to become a climate scientist so that she can, quote, solve the climate crisis. And Thunberg replies this way, but the climate crisis has already been solved. We already have all the facts and solutions. All we have to do is wake up and change, end quote. Now, many people share her frustration and agree that it's past time to wake up, to shake off the stupor of a political economy almost wholly organized around growth, understood as making ever more stuff, ever more profit, more and more waste, more and more exploitation of people and natural resources. But there also seems to be something inadequate, I think, about the figure of waking up as a response to the problem that Thunberg identifies, i.e., the problem of the gap between knowing the facts of climate change and actually doing things differently. There's a gap between those two. And it's that gap and thinking about ways to jump over it that prompts my comments tonight. Now, while information can wake us up intellectually, rarely is it sufficient by itself alone to propel action. I think everybody's had that experience where you know what you should be doing, you know what's the right thing to do, you know what the facts have led you to believe, you have a conviction about it, but somehow you're not living it, you're not doing it. The Roman poet Ovid has Medea put the point succinctly in his Metamorphoses, I see clearly a better course and I approve, yet I follow its defeat. Medea names what philosophers today call the problem of action or the problem of motivating action, what Marxist philosophers explore as the vexed relationship of theory to praxis, and what Ralph Waldo Emerson lamented as the fact that thought and life seem to lie in parallel lines and never meet. Now, acting differently, as you know, is really hard to do. 
Nietzsche suggested that this was in part because humans, like cows and gazelles, are herd animals. The American pragmatist John Dewey pointed to the default force of habit, and as did Kierkegaard, who said, "If you want to save your soul from habit's cunning, let the thunder of a hundred cannons remind you three times a day to resist the force of habit, but take care that this also does not become habit." Ultimately, for Kierkegaard, there really is only one way, he says, to overcome habit: to affirm divine eternities. You shall. End quote. Tonight, I'm going to suggest another way to try to jump that gap. It involves harnessing the energy or the wind of bodily affects or emotions, because it takes daring, strength, and a lot of vital force. In addition to the right circumstances and the right public inducements, for a body to move from knowing to enacting. So that's what I'm going to try to talk about. If such courageous crossings from body, from knowing to action, are to happen, we need not only good scientific knowledge, but also, among other things, the motive force of the emotions or the affects. We need their mojo. We need their restless impetus. We need, for example, the force of anger. Anger called forth by pointed critiques of capitalist exploitation, of petromasculinity, of the obscene indifference toward the suffering and objection of people, places, peoples, and non-human beings. We also need, and this will be my particular focus tonight, the energy of joy and aesthetic, effective sensory enchantments. In a recent essay on comic power by、uh, Lars Turner, that helps to explain the motive force of joy, insofar as it manifests as a disposition toward the comical, as an easy willingness to or propensity to laugh. Lars calls this, following Spinoza, hilaritas. Lars shows how such a sensibility or comportment is open to an outside. If you're, you know, free and easy to laugh, you're open to the outside. It's curious, quote, about life such as it is, end quote. Such openness to being affected, easy laughter, paradoxically enhances a body's power to affect the scene. So if you're open to the scene, you can also read the scene, take it in, and that will enhance your power to act. The idea goes something like this: the more well-connected you are. The more you're taking in the scene, making links, the more effective you can be. So that's sort of the problem. Wake up and change is not so easy. Is gap between knowledge and action. Okay, how do you jump the gap? Openness, sensory receptivity of humor, affective energy you need, etc.、Um, joyful enchantments, all of that stuff can help. Let me move now to the second part: nature psychedelia. All right. I will be retelling a comical and oddball, psychedelic is probably a better term, story, enchanting story, I think, that Henry Thoreau told about his encounter in the 1850s with some physical shapes out there when he was taking a walk. The physical shapes that he encountered was the shape of a drop. It was the shape of a cascade of vine-like lines. The shape of the letters of the alphabet that he used when he went back into his house and wrote up his encounter. It's a mind-bending and habit-cracking tale, I think, and it's one with the power to enchant. 
By enchant, I mean to be simultaneously transfixed in wonder, but also transported by sensuous attention, to be both caught up and carried away, which is an odd combination of affects. Thoreau's little story enchants and begins to rewire his central nervous system, you could say. That is to say, to shift the way that he, and maybe we, perceive one's existence in relation to his milieu. His milieu is more than his individual experience, and more even than, it's a more than human milieu. So Thoreau's close attentiveness to the quite mundane sight of a railroad embankment is somehow able to compete and interfere with the force of habit. So it's an enchanting tale that competes and interferes with the force of habit. Thoreau's story alters what might be called the normal regime of the sensible. By regime of the sensible, I mean that habituated selection that a body makes concerning what it is going to mark off as noteworthy of attention. From amidst the millions of forces and bodies capable of making an impression on you, you select some things out and you ignore others. You foreground some things, you background some other sensory impressions. Um, so by regime of the sensible, I mean, you know, your grid, your screen for what it is that you're going to actually see, hear, touch, sniff, and taste of the world. The Anthropocene is, among other things, a regime of perceptual occlusions and diverted desires. Thoreau's psychedelic experience, which I'm going to get to, is one example of how to notice differently, how to take pleasure in a new set of, of impressions. As the radical feminist poet Audre Lorde said in her 1984 essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury, The goal is to alter your aura, your ideas, your dreams, rather than merely move you to temporary and reactive action. And we'll need to do that if we're going to reorganize society in ways that are not carbon waste and exploitation-based, or not so much so that way, if it is to become normal to find pleasures elsewhere. So yes to being woke, and yes to seeing and feeling otherwise. Okay, enough theoretical preliminaries. Let me just tell you Thoreau's story. And this is the story of sand foliage. All right, here's the deal. So Thoreau's out walking. He takes his walks every day, very long walks, sort of like Copenhageners. Um, and it's almost but not quite spring. And after a long and very cold Massachusetts winter, he's out walking. And he's stopped in his tracks by the eruption of what he calls the sand foliage appearing alongside the train tracks. He's struck by what the surrealist Roger Caillois called the lyrical force of an object that's able to arrest the natural restlessness of his human attention. So he sees this, something like that. And the particular object of fascination for him is a shape that of a cascade of lobed leaves made out of snow, sand, clay, metallic dust from the passing trains. On the railroad embankment, snow is melting and running down, as is the sand and clay and metal filings under and within that surface, each material moving at a slightly different pace but forming overlapping conjoining flows. And here's what he writes in his journal. Innumerable little streams overlap and interlace, exhibiting a sort of hybrid product, which obeys halfway the law of currents and halfway that of vegetation. 
As it flows, it takes the form of sappy leaves or vines, making heaps of pulpy sprays a foot or more in depth. It is a truly grotesque vegetation, more ancient than acanthus, chicory, ivy, vine, or any vegetable leaves. It's a puzzle to future geologists. Now, it's noteworthy to Thoreau that water, sand, metallic dust and clay, which are mineral elements, you would say, have taken on a shape of leafy vines characteristic of vegetal life. The sand foliage's indifference to the matter-life distinction prompts Thoreau to conclude, quote, that there is nothing inorganic. In a journal entry later that year, Thoreau notes that the earth I tread on is not a dead, inert mass, it is a body, and it is fluid to influences. So just like the person who's open to the scene and can find humor in the scene, because he's open to it, the earth is not a dead, inert mass. It is a body and fluid to the influence, the influx, the flow in of his milieu. Now, in a second wild thought, Thoreau proclaims that the similarity in shape between that sand foliage and the leafy vines is evidence of a geologic version of thinking or ideation. So the earth thinks. Sand foliage is evidence of the Earth's, what Thoreau describes as the Earth's inward musings about a favorite shape it has. You thus find in the very sands an anticipation of the vegetable leaf. No wonder that the Earth expresses itself outwardly in leaves. It so labors with the idea inwardly. Now, Thoreau experiences an organic, sprawling, ideating Earth, susceptible to influences emanating from visible bodies as well as from what he just calls ethereal forces. Okay, now let me move on. So that's his, he's out there, he sees this sand foliage, he makes connections between the animal, the vegetable, and the mineral. He's the animal. And the next section I want to talk about is called The Shape of the Drop, and this is part of his story. The Earth, like Thoreau's own sensitive body, he says, is all alive and colored with covered with papillae, you know, like little sensors. That's also from his journal. This premeditating living earth alters him. It, quote, stirs his blood and excites new and indescribable fancies. Among those fancies, I say, is the idea that clay, water, sand, vines, and as we shall see in the following passage, human flesh, are all mimetic expressions of each other. They're all copying each other. And they're also expressions of a prototypical shape. Everybody, Thoreau cries out now in his journal, is a variation on the theme of the drop, or a moist, thick lobe. And this is the best quote here. What is man but a mass of thawing clay? The ball of the human fingers but a drop congealed. The fingers and toes flow to the extent from the thawing mass of the body. The nose is a manifest congealed drop of stalactite. The chin is a still larger drop and the confluent dripping of the face. The cheeks are a slide from the brows into the valley of the face. Each rounded lobe of the vegetable leaf, too, is a thick and now loitering drop. The lobes of fingers of the leaves. <laughs> okay, so what's going on here? Some strange shit is going on down here. Um, you know, I got to use the, the psychedelic language. Um, as if on an LSD trip, very ordinary things, his nose, ivy, some clay and sand in a ditch, detach from their usual context to reappear um, 
um, as uh, sublime ridiculous. Each entity dilates and blurs at its edges to enter a dripping cosmic morphology. What is more, what happens to the nose, the ivy, the clay, the sand, and the water also happens, Thoreau insists, to the letters of the alphabet that he's using to write up this story. He writes, conscious of a slight insanity in my mood, I see that the letters of the word lobe, as themselves iterations of the glob drop shape, the radicals of the lobe are LB, the soft mass of the B, single lobed, or capital B, double lobed, and the liquid L behind it, pressing it forward. Okay, now he's really, really off the edge there. There is no qualitative break between the linguistic and the material. There's a prototypical shape, nature repeats it with a twist, and that happens, there's no qualitative difference between the linguistic and the material. The same thing goes on for letters and language. Okay, let me wrap up. Thoreau's story of a close encounter with snow, sand, clay, dust, thawing along a railroad embankment rejiggered his regime of perception and it opened up a pervasive but also often invisible sight of sensuous pleasure. He's really enjoying this. These materials and their shape and movement style, in combination with Thoreau's subsequent writing up of them in words in his journal, enchant him. That is to say, they afford him greater access to what you might call a surreal or a virtual or a cosmic or a psychedelic strata of one's own existence, which is always around if you shift your regime of the perceptible. A strata always co-present with more ordinary modes of sensing. I think I'm just going to move to the end. This is what Thoreau describes as winged thoughts. He says, at the embankment, he finds, quote, in the very sands, an anticipation of the vegetable leaf. And the leaf, for its part, sees its prototype in the shape of moist, thick lobes. Likewise, the ball of the human finger is but a drop congealed, and the chin is still a larger drop, the confluent dripping of the face. Again, what is man but a mass of thawing clay? A new regime of what's sensible emerges, and new perceptions arise, as do what he describes as his winged thoughts, which, quote, like birds, do not tolerate too much handling. So Thoreau's thoughts leap and overshoot, and his account of the thawing bank is both overdone and elusive, but he takes these to be virtues. In a journal entry on Christmas Day, he contrasts explanations governed by the understanding with the truer discipline of a writer who takes for his theme the faintest intimations and the least film of thought that floats in the twilight sky, end quote. So to allow your words to shoot beyond their mark is to perform a valuable task of tapping into alternative realities that compete with the force of habit. Such enchantments, and this is my punchline, should, it seems, be included within the swarm of practices that we experiment with as we try to forge a radical green transition. I think I'm going to stop with that, and I'm looking forward to Emma and Melissa's comments, and thanks for listening. Bennett is now joined on stage by Emma Holten, Melissa van Drie, and Lars Tønder, who moderates and introduces the panel. Thank you, uh, and thanks for everyone for, for coming. Uh, thanks, Jane, for, uh, for such an excellent and, and thought-provoking talk. You thank Copenhagen 
for welcoming you. I can, on behalf of Copenhagen, say thank you for coming. <laughs> It's been really a joy to have you here for the past almost two months, and I'm already sad about the thought of you leaving again. But maybe you can come back again later. Two things before we get into the conversation. First, also thank you to Melissa and Emma for accepting the invitation. Emma, many of you already know, she's a feminist activist, she's a critic, and she's a speaker who has contributed to many things, but most recently, feminist economics. She provides public commentary on things around that and is, generally speaking, one of our most outspoken public intellectuals today. Melissa is a researcher, writer, and performer. Melissa, you work across disciplines of music and sound, food and ecology, and the history of science and technology. And then you are a fellow at the Center for Applied Ecological Thinking. And our hope is, of course, that between the two of you and, and myself and Jane, we can perhaps approach this theme, which was the second thing I was going to say about the theme, ecological actions. And we've kind of like chosen that as our umbrella for two reasons. The first is obvious, and that is that we more than ever need action especially perhaps in light of the disappointing outcome of the more recent COP27 negotiations, there's a feel that we are not doing enough. But secondly, it's also quite controversial and uncertain what that action should consist of and what it should look like. So for some, it means militancy and revolution in the name of a new political order. For others, it means leaving the human behind, rethinking what it means to exist, And still for others, it means something like small changes in our everyday lives, hoping that that will or may not affect greater changes in society. My hope is that we can get closer to those issues in this conversation for the next hour or so. And we've sort of agreed beforehand that we were going to try and at least touch on three themes. Let's see if we manage. But something about what it feels like to be in a time of climate change or more academically speaking, what affects and the Anthropocene might feel and look like, something about activism and the politics of activism, and then finally, to really get up in the sort of like abstract level, what humanism and feminism might mean uh, today. But before we get started, I also just want to hear Emma and Melissa, maybe just one thing that stood out in Jane's talk, what you think we should pursue as we go along. Emma, do you want to start with that? Yeah, thank you so much. And, and hi, everyone. It's such a pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for your enlightening talk and all of your work, Jade. It's been such a pleasure to dive into it. I think something that struck me listening to it was, do we look at our current society as an expression of human desire and human habit? Or do we look at it as an expression of something else? And I think I'm a little bit inclined, and I, I don't think you disagree necessarily, but I think I'm inclined to think that actually the society that we're living in currently, actually human beings have to be constantly manipulated into accepting the current society. So if we look at something like the vacation, <laughs> the flying to a foreign country to relax, in a climate analysis, you could look at that as an issue, right? People want to use fuel to get to Mallorca or something. That's the kind of behavior that we should abstain from, right? Uh, but you could also look at it as exactly what you're asking for, as actually a wish to exit the capital-intensive life and trying to escape into another type of living. I'm actually constantly seeing that human beings have to be manipulated all the time to work more and to consume more. It's actually not something that comes to us as a habit. If people wanted to consume autonomously as a wish, we wouldn't need advertising, for example. And 
if people wanted to work constantly, we wouldn't need to have, for example, housing market that constantly incentivizes more work by increasing the prices. And I think that I'm maybe I, optimistic is such a fraught word in, in this type of debate, but I actually constantly see people pushing against the reigning habits that are being imposed on us. And I don't see necessarily our current society as an expression of desire, even in the Western world. I actually see that as a very manipulated desire. And if more spaces were created where we were not manipulated, where we were not constantly incentivized to do certain things, there actually is a lot of desire for other things. So I think thinking about what type of behavior is it that we want to change is fruitful for me in going into this. That was just the first thought. I can kind of respond to that a little bit as well in terms of my interests are taking sensory experience seriously in this moment of, you know, our changing modes of life. So what that means is that we have this persistent view and pervasive view that how we feel, what we experience, and these other kinds of knowing the world are fine, they're interesting, but ultimately they're not important to the growth-based models, right? This is what you're saying, we have to be manipulated. What we feel is not really important. It's rendered subjective. And this is very much Bruno Latour, right? who says this, maybe I'm saying that in homage of Bruno Latour. But this is also upholding and maintaining a very modernist idea to be trapped in these kind of modernist parallels that we're trying to critique and escape. So I would think that that kind of corresponds to the construction of desire in certain ways and in feeling that, you know, actually we can't be heard in all of these different ways we have to express ourselves. That kind of taps into my interest, my great interest in enchanted encounters and in these kind of stagings, which is what Thoreau did, you know, this staging of, of enchantment that he does in his writing. I have a kind of a 19th century hat. Um, I worked a lot in 19th century artistic practices and scientific histories. I was thinking a lot when I was reading your paper about the practices of attunement that we're all so passionate about in terms of people who are working in environmental humanities and in anthropology, about, and in art and, and even in, in ecofeminism, about attuning to the world, to finding out ways of, of noticing it in different ways and letting our bodies really speak. And I think that this Thoreau example was really... Next to the railway, it was really, you know, based in a place we really felt that sort of maybe a parallel with attunement. And I think I often think about this, um, you know, when I'm thinking about noticing something and, and being with the world. I think back to the 19th century because that was the moment where we had these aesthetic practices. It was an aesthetic practice to go out in the world and notice things, right? It's based there. We had all these technologies that were developed that would, you know, move our attention, which would open up this invisible world and we could sense sounds that we never sensed and we could see things that we never saw. And this kind of also technological movement, which is connected to colonialism, which is connected to capitalism, which is connected to the industrial world, that kind of artistic practice is shaped, moving, part of responding to part of what's going on there. And I'm always thinking in my own work, how is, in some ways, we're talking about attuning differently to the world, but where does that attunement start? So when we're thinking about enchantment, we could also think about being disenchanted, or we could say, who's being enchanted? How do they let themselves go into that fuzzy, weird space and imagine? I think that's super important. But I also think what you did, I and mean, what Thoreau does, is he's sitting there in this kind of messy metal railway space where the railway is cutting across the land, right? And he's sitting there making it spectacular, so opening up a space for noticing, open up, opening up a space for play and imagination. But he's also really grounded in a sort of feral ecology already of something yeah. coming. And I think that there's a complication in that term of enchantment 
and where it's situated and how it stays in the material that's really important, so that we don't have just this kind of floating up into the atmosphere. Well, we're already well into some of our themes here, so maybe if I can turn to you, Jane, because one of the questions I had listening to your talk is I wanted to encourage you to explore and explain a bit more what you mean by the following. You said, and I think it speaks both to what Emma and Melissa just said, you said at some point, the Anthropocene is, quote, a regime of perpetual occlusions and diverted desires, end of quote. Um, and I'm wondering what you actually meant by this. Is it this psychedelic strange shit? Are these the occlusions and diverted desires? Or is it the manipulations that Emma sort of like talked about? Or is it this sort of like tension-filled enchantment that Melissa highlighted? Can we get a little bit closer to what it actually feels like, as it were, to be in the Anthropocene, if that question can be answered at all? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a fancy phrase, perpetual occlusions and diverted desires. I think the diverted desires is pretty much what Emma said, that there's a kind of, let's think of it as a flow of pleasure-seeking, a flow of desire, and, and capitalism and the, you know, is very, very good at tapping into those. People who study capitalism not just as an economic system, but as a way of capturing and redeploying affective charge, right? That's, they're very thoughtful about how those desires are channeled towards you're happy if you get more, if you buy more stuff. You're happy if you go to Mallorca, you know, and you're not from Mallorca. So just sort of desire and pleasure-seeking channeled into consumeristic buying and also into self-publicity on social media, which is a, just a self-branding. I mean, it's all taking all the pleasure, taking the desire for pleasure-seeking, taking pleasure-seeking and channeling it towards some end that is part of profit-seeking or whatever. But the perpetual occlusions maybe is a little bit a little bit different. I think that's the way, and this is maybe more what Melissa was saying about modernism, this is the way we moderns, and I don't think we moderns are 100% modern, <laughs> just steal Bruno Latour, the way that the animal, the vegetable, and the mineral, and the atmospheric entities and energies, we tend to treat them like their background, like they're the context for our human action. And so that's an occlusion, because the background is active. The background is not a background. Bruno Latour talked about it in terms of as actants. Technological objects, natural objects, they're actants. They're doing stuff to us. You know, was very inspired by that idea, and I thought about it in terms of vibrant matter, right? Lively materialities. So I think part of what's going on with these perceptual occlusions is that we don't sufficiently attend to the ways in which we are infused by non-human forces and things, and we are more than human. We take in, we have a whole microbiome in our guts, et cetera, et cetera. There's metals that we've breathed in, toxic and otherwise. So that's sort of what I meant. Is it then also in those occlusions that you see some kind of promise for a new kind of belonging or a new kind of care for the ecological world, so the action becomes ecological. Yes. I mean, this is the big if, that if you notice the vitality of the scene and the vitality of the non-people actors in it, as well as the vitality of the people actors in it, if you notice that, the, the, the big if is, is that you're going to see the extent to which your own self-interest, very broadly construed, depends upon a healthy ecosystem. 
so that you would care for it in the way that you would care for your body. But of course, not everybody even cares for their own body well. That's the general idea, is that attentiveness, a greater sense of interconnectedness and dependency and interdependency, it's not that's the objects and we're the subjects, but we're all engaging, that that is going to produce more care and a more ecological sensibility and ultimately a different political economy, I suppose, yeah. There's such a rich history of thinking about this actually in human-to-human relations. And here I'm thinking, of course, especially about uh, the field that I know best, which is feminism, where we have such a rich history of understanding why does something like rape happen? How can one human being treat another human being as a tool for their own pleasure? Uh, what is the process whereby that happens? And in feminism, we have this great word that kept popping into my mind as I was reading your book, Byron Matter, which is objectification. And I think we have really a lot of knowledge actually in understanding how in patriarchal societies, which is all societies, it is actually fully possible to understand that a woman is human, yet you are still able to treat her as if she were a tool for your own pleasure. And I think that that actually mirrors a lot of the movements that you're describing, that many people will say, okay, on an intellectual plane, I understand that I need nature to function, I need that minerals and electricity have this inherent push forward and energy, yet we still actually are fully able to treat them as tools, as objects. And I think in feminist history, there just has been this constant, how do we bridge the gap between intellectually conceptualizing that women are human and then actually treating them as if they are human? And I think that that's something that I've been working on a lot, working on how we perceive images of women, for example, on the internet, and how people who perceive themselves as enlightened, progressive people suddenly are not actually able to identify the abstract of an image as if it is an image of a person who has rights and who has autonomous will and power and energy moving forward. Forward. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about objectification is that in a way we don't even need to look at the stone or look at the glove to see objectification because we have human-on-human objectification happening constantly. I'm not saying we don't need to do it. Of course, we need to do it. But the movement that I see in your book is so fruitful in order to also think what humans constantly do to each other. I'm against objectification of people, but um, <laughs> for the record, but Glad um, to hear <laughs> but it's a constant battle to fight it off because materiality is usable, and we are flesh. And there's a sense in which I don't know if it's helpful in terms of the moral discussion, but there's a thing like it-like quality to the human existence. And the trick, which I don't have the answer to, is how do you acknowledge that as a vibrancy, as a vitality, but without making it all the way into a, a subject, without going all the way into saying it's a being with rights and will? Historically, we've said don't treat people as a means to an end, treat them as an end in themselves. But that's got some problems too, because that keeps up the subject-object thing. And what I'm trying to see whether we could think our way into is. Um, a world of vital materialities that have different capacities and powers that are also profoundly interconnected, that maybe care rather than rights might be the vocabulary we move towards. Not that I want to get rid of rights right now because we don't have that new system in place just yet. So rights are good, yeah. Melissa, I have a sense that you have something to say to this conversation because objectification 
And that type of language is obviously also a language within aesthetics, and it's a way how we treat artifacts and how we construct artifacts. And you have in your own work discussed some of these things around sound and around images and so forth. So I'm wondering whether what your take on this discussion would be in terms of a noticing the objectifications that are going on all the time, but then also b to find room or to find space. These occlusions or these sort of like getting closer to that ecological connectedness that we have, and that will be the precondition or the beginning of a certain kind of care and belonging. I'm totally interested in practices, sonic practices, and and how sounds、um, shape our world, and how humans use their sonic experience and the sensing of sound and and this kind of notion of vibrations to make sense of the world and to use it in politics. Which is going to, I think, tap on both. It's going to bring what I would call a sonic perspective into this conversation. So, first of all, sounds are not a backdrop to our world, right? They're the vibrant relations when we're talking about vibrations and literal vibrations that we can feel and that we can register because of some of these technologies that were created in the 19th century. We can feel and、uh, know. All of these kind of material vibrations that hold us together, that have a powerful kind of symbolic interconnectedness, and show all kinds of ways in which we're resonating, and in these kind of metabolic ways of resonating, right? So we have sounds are not a backdrop to our world; they are the vibrant relations that reveal our interconnections in all sorts of ways, and they're intimate, and they can be physical, and they let us play with our entanglements, right? So this kind of sonic realm in register is interesting, I think. In saying that, and also sound is, of course, it can really move us. It can move our emotions. It is powerful in our storytelling. It always has been, in terms of things coming alive and speaking and being able to shake us. And we're going to be shaken more and more as the planet is changing. And we're shaken not only here, but as we're connected to the rest of the world, we're going to be feeling the shakings of the earth. The rumblings of the earth are going to really emerge. In our ways of feeling and change how we are as listeners and change some of these relationships, but we're often here when we're talking about ecology. There's this kind of word. It's kind of like, please listen. You've seen it in books. You've seen it on posters. You've seen it in art、um, exhibitions. This kind of catchphrase of listen. I think it's fantastic. But listening as a means of care is not easy, right? It's not innocent and it's not simple. Listening is always political, and this is what we're saying: it's always political. Listening is always enacted, and it's always performing power. So, how we listen, who we listen to, who has been silenced, how we silence them, how we torture them—this is embedded in listening and in sound. This includes, you know, deafening the oceans so that whales can't hear or that coral reefs can't sound and things can't be reproduced. And this is also in absolutely silencing all kinds of people on this earth through their relationships. The power of listening is not to be taken lightly. It's not an innocent thing. We actually have to consider all of these aspects in care. And I'm going to show you now an image of something. I want to introduce you to, going back to my 19th-century fixations, I want to introduce you to the first headphone experience and iPod experience. This is 1881, and this is the first time there was a virtual moment of listening elsewhere in a mediated space through headphones to the theater to sound. It already started then, and why I wanted to show this to you is because it was a technique that was used to channel attention, to fix our attention, to listen into the world, and it's a very much connected to a politics of separation. So we were talking about objectivity, and this kind of 
way of objectifying sounds and cutting it up is very much a part of some of these colonial practices we're talking about and some of these power practices we're talking about. And I wanted to show this because um, I've been really thinking about like when we're kind of attached to our headphones and we're on our, our bikes and we're moving th through the world and wondering what that actually does in terms of you know, how we're actually engaging in the world and how we're actually being programmed, because there's, there's a legacy, there are historical legacies in how we sense. And that's why I wanted to show you this image of, it looks like a joyful image it is, but it has some pretty serious consequences. It's really attached to the cutting up, the extraction and the capturing. So that's also in all of that. Jane, I think if I can turn to you, because I think a lot of us who read Vibrant Matter back 10 years ago, we were struck by, and I think it speaks to Melissa's exam, we were struck by the image or the reporting of this trash on the streets of Baltimore and all the things you got out of that little pile of trash. It strikes me as if there was a technique here of listening and attention and of caring for the world. Is it in those small practices of listening and reattunement of our senses that there is some hope for ecological action or do we need bigger technologies and bigger transformations in order to get somewhere with our hopes for the future? I think we need many, many different tactics. And Lars, you and there's some people in the audience today, Bill Conley, my husband, and others who've thought about a politics of swarming, which is you need to get together a whole bunch of different things and have them simultaneously try, experimentally try different things out. So I don't think that shifts in your attentiveness sufficient, but I think that it will make trouble for objectification. It will make trouble for waste production. It will make trouble maybe for other destructive practices. But I don't think it's the whole thing. I think you also need structural changes in how the economy is organized, how consumption is organized, how production is organized. I think you need to use everything that you can. You need to use sensory sound attentiveness. You need to, you need to have feminist activists. So maybe this is a way of segueing into this other theme that we wanted to talk to, which is activism, right? Because now we're starting to sort of like think i don't think we're done. We haven't delivered the full analysis of the Anthropocene and what it feels like, but at least we've got some pointers here that can guide our conversation. But in your own talk, Jane, you started out provocatively, I think, with Greta Thunberg, and you sort of like used her as a model for thinking about activism. But I also sense a certain skepticism about what it is that we understand and what we take activism today to mean and to be. So... Can you confirm that suspicion? And if so, what is it that you're sort of thinking about activists? What type of activism do you find most interesting or most promising for the kind of politics that you have in mind? Yeah, I mean, my answer is the same. I think you need a bunch of different tactics. Usually when people think about the action in activism, it's direct, confrontational, overt, clear, and has a goal announced in advance. <laughs> That's good. It's just a lot of action doesn't fit that model. And I think that there's also forms of action that is subtle, indirect, tilts the assemblage in which you find yourself, is not acting like you're outside of it and that you can see a revolutionary alternative, although I think pretending that you're outside and can see a revolutionary alternative also has value. I also have been thinking a lot about activism Like, what set of pleasures and energies does it try to capture and redirect or tilt? Anger is one. You need some anger. Enchantment is one. You need some that. You need pleasure. There's pleasure in anger. 
There's pleasure in being pissed off at yourself and the bad ones around you. But the other thing I've been thinking about is you want your activism to get people charged up to make changes, but you don't inadvertently want to hype up the anxiety level to the point where people feel disempowered. So it's very tricky, and you have to just see the scene, see the audience, make a political judgment, which will be fallible, and try to respond to the scene and add in what you think is needed. And then if it doesn't work, you've got to revise your plan. I'm not going to let you off the hook so easily. Yes, because I'm just <laughs> pluralist. Yeah, well, because, exactly. And I'm a pluralist, too. And I love pluralism, and I understand this call for multiple tactics and multiple ways of organizing. And eventually, that will become some kind of swarming effect where the small changes in, in the different connections will yield a much bigger result. But when I'm listening to some of your conversations on what action is, yeah. whether it's Thoreau or other references, there is this sense that the grand declaration of a revolution or the grand action or something is belying, is not really acknowledging the conditions of action, which is this strange mix of something passive and something active. And that the danger, if I take your argument at face value, the danger is that these types of activisms will promise more than they can deliver and maybe in that sense become self-undermining. Am I wrong about that? Or is there so like a way in which you're also a little bit critical of those, even if you are pluralist, there are certain types of activism that we should be yes. more skeptical of than others? Um. Probably. Uh -huh. <laughs> But I think the reason why I have the skepticism is because the subject position that you have to inhabit to engage in that kind of activism is quite Zeus-like. You know, like, oh, I'm powerful, I am, a, I am a control, I am a singular agent, and I can do, you know. So it's the subject position that you have to inhabit. I mean, obviously, this is not about all activists and people of different styles and this and that. I'm just saying that... I have a certain skepticism about modes of activism that put you in that position, which I find to be a destructive subject position. Which is not to say that there aren't some times when you need some charismatic leader on the right side of history. It's so risky to go that way. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Now, Emma, I see you are sitting here really wanting to get into the... <laughs> uh, but I think it's fair to say that, that a lot of your uh, work evolves around, in one way or another, the issue of activism. So I am curious to hear your take on some of Jane's contributions and how they resonate, both with sort of like what your hope activism can be, but also perhaps, and you're more than welcome to do that, also to relate it to some of your own experiences and some of your own encounters with the joys and the enchantments of activism and the frustrations and the disappointments and the sort of like just wanting to... Yeah, exactly. Uh, and how to negotiate those affects within activism. I obviously agree with the diversity of tactics point. I think that really is the main point, that this is like a many-headed hydra and we need as many attacks as the hydra has heads, you know? But I also think that I really resonate with your point about reorienting desire. I think when I started working on feminist economics, I had been working on digital sexual violence for many years and there had been this really blooming of feminist consciousness in Denmark. It's quite uh, fantastic to witness. But I also felt that we spent a lot of time talking about what we didn't want and not really that much time about what could an alternative look like. And I wanted to kind of tap into a desire that was already, I felt, very present both in activist spaces but also just in society in general, which was the inherent desire for more free time. 
The desire for more time with friends, for more time with family, for more time to reflect, for hobbies. And I kind of got around to the point that for me, the most enlightening way for me to share knowledge with other people was to say, okay, there is an inherently violent system at the core of your life, which is the pricing mechanism. And the pricing mechanism is currently pricing your free time at zero value. So it's incredibly difficult for us within existing economic circumstances to desire and express a desire for something that has no price. And I really got to the point where I thought, okay, so what is it that I find that we need to do in activist space? It is to really lay bare the really, and I think this is a very undervalued point, the extremely esoteric nature of the economic system and how within even the way we speak about money in activism and in feminism, we constantly say capitalism, but we very rarely talk about what does that system look like in practice. And I wanted to kind of lay bare the pricing mechanisms of early microeconomics and not only in capitalism, but also how I feel that there is a collaboration between capitalism and the knowledge production, the epistemological work within the field of economics that legitimizes capitalism as, as if the pricing mechanism is the same. And I think Oscar Wilde said it best, you know, he says the cynic, but you could also say the economist uh, knows the price of everything and the value of nothing, you know? And I think that, that this also taps so clearly into your work that if you look at that pile of trash, its most central tenet of meaning in our current system is that it has no economic value. So thus, we must push it aside and replace it with something of economic value. So I felt that what really was important was to reorientate or like divert a desire that already existed for meaning, for free time, um, and say, actually, your sense that there is a cognitive dissonance between a desire that you have and a desire that you are allowed to express, which is only the desire for priced items, that we can actually create a space for a desire for non-priced activities and non-priced items. And I was really interested in your work in Vibrant Matter because, for me, fielding and encouraging and kind of almost um, planting the interest or the desire for non-priced items really is a very radical act that takes a lot of work because you're constantly resisting in that desire. And I think the other part of this is, of course, that economics has an incredible closing down effect of possibility. We're constantly told that only the desire for more and more, what you also mentioned earlier in terms of growth, the only thing we can desire is an increase of priced items. Items. Anything we desire that is more of non-priced items is always thought to be impossible. And the mechanization that starts out in the birth of economics in the Enlightenment period, which really is this distancing of the human being and the non-living matter, I find it so parallel with the history of economics, yeah. which is we price everything, and if it doesn't have a price, we don't really care about it. There's two, this is going to bring in Melissa, there's two aspects of it, though. The first aspect is, as you point out, to expose the pricing system. It's like, pull back the curtain. Here's what it is. Expose it. Demystify it. But then the second part, as you also say, is to remind people, not even to induce new desires, but to remind them that they already have those new desires. They already have those desires for the non-priced. That seems to me what your work does, which is people love music. People love 
vibrations. People get pleasure out of that, and you go forward. You pick that up, and you go forward. So it's like the capitalist system is not completely successful. It's got all these esoteric. It's like it's riddled with holes, and and it holds itself together like like the Wizard of Oz. And then you know, so you pull out what's underneath there, and you don't have to invent it. You just have to induce it. You have to induce what's already there. So I'm very interested also in this. Understanding of pleasure and the value of desire, and kind of in this space that you're talking about, about going into a space and, and understanding what can turn us on. So what we're talking about is like a almost kind of a marveling, or coming back to a moment of marveling and being able to come into into touch, you know, in this kind of spectacular stagings or these this staging of an enchantment. And this can happen. What we're talking about in a very personal way. On a very small scale, and I think that the topic of scale is really important here. We were being, being told that you see these monstrous reports of, of what's going on and how we digest information of what's going on, and then how we hold this sensory marvel and maybe what it does to us, and we take it with us into another place. So how do we take something that's happened to us and take it into the boardroom? How do artists know where to intervene a sensory experience? Within processes, how do we start to kind of also make them move and intervene within each other? Because that's actually a very bodily and practical matter. But try and take that into your own field with sound, for example, right? So what I find interesting here is this constant play back and forth between a very active action yeah. and action that tries to change things and that tries to either through knowledge or through sensory experience and what have you. To change things, but then on the other hand, there's always like we are thrown into a capitalist system. We are thrown into the world, and so there's always this sort of like back and forth between the passive and the active. And and it seems to me that sound is one of those places where that is played out, if you like, the most succinctly. Well, it's also a belief in a movement, of course, in keeping us together in times of precarity. It's not it's not easy. So sound is also important because I think there's a collectivity in it. And、um, what we were talking about in objectivity is a movement from the I am listening to you to listening together, right? So、yeah. to this collectivity. So there is a capacity. That's an important moment in becoming active listeners, not receiving and not being the I in this, but you know. Moving out with our bodies within the world and using this kind of notion of sound to be collective. So that's one idea. The one thing I wanted to just do, actually, in homage to the enchanted experience, is I wanted to actually replay a, a sonic experience and just play with what it might be to encounter a sound and think about how it's different than vision and how it's different than reading.、Um, some of you in the room I know have heard this, and if you you have heard it, maybe you can think about what it's like to re-listen to it. Anyway, but sit back and just see what you feel. We'll do this really quick. Okay.、Um, before we just say what that is、uh, or think about it, I just wanted to point out that maybe it was 
an ambiguous sound or something that you're kind of thrown into ambiguity. You don't know really what it is. Maybe it's human, non-human, technological. Well, we probably know it's not. It's, it's non-human. I also wanted to bring in a non-human voice into our conversation, and I just wanted to point out that there are these kind of intimate experiences that kind of can throw us into ambiguity, questioning, doubt, and maybe could lead to curious paths and open up speculative paths. And it's kind of through some of these, even like these little minor, you know, what's happening. Or we, we've been talking about chopping vegetables, the pleasure of chopping vegetables. But whatever it is that you know, you can have these moments of kind of drifting outside of you know how we think, how we know, data sets, news. I'm saying that, and it can lead to other questions. And in saying that, do you guys want to like shout what you thought it was? One, two, three. Ducks. What did you think it was? Uh, something moving forward, like a really small train. Yeah, cool. That's great. I love these kind of they can be really complex things and movement. And I mean, this is a very kind of specific sound. It's not like these kind of amazing sound worlds that some people in the audience actually create. Because I know there's sound artists here, but it's actually the acoustic. We're entering the acoustic world of honeybees, and those are queen bees who are piping and they're eco-locating themselves in the hive. Or this is something fake. So I captured them. I was extracting this information as a human does. And they were going to meet, and then they'll fight to the death, and there'll be one that's left over. So it's a violent story. But I love the polyphony, and I love the fact that the bees sense through their feet, so they get us out of this idea of just thinking through our ears because we're feeling, you know, and other creatures feel. And thinking about the amazing acoustic worlds and kind of resonances that happen between bees themselves, but also between bees and flowers, flowers sensing. And this is a very wonderful way of thinking about flourishing. But Emma, you wanted to, to jump in here. Yeah, I just think it's very interesting concerning what you were saying about background, right? Like, what is the background for anything else? And usually, when I talk about feminist economics, I say care work is the work that makes all other work possible. And this kind of does the same thing in foregrounding what is usually background. And giving it center stage, for me, I think that is the movement that is most important in my thinking of biodiversity and climate. And our role in that is trying to move myself backward and moving other things forward, and seeing not how I'm supported by them moving around and pushing forward, and not seeing it as supporting me, but as me supporting it. Um, and I think that's often a very or at least for me, useful intellectual exercise to flip it backwards. And I really got that sense listening to this. In English, can you say putting the cart in front of the horse? Like something like that. And I think listening to these sounds and especially hearing what it was gave me that sense of centering and stepping back, but still connecting to it. And I find that to be incredibly important for me because I think Oftentimes, a person like Greta Thunberg will often say, you know, we know exactly what to do. Every individual knows exactly what to do. I don't find that to be true at all. I honestly don't know what to do as an individual about climate change in order to be most effective. I think if you look at something like during the coronavirus lockdowns, hundreds of thousands of flights were flying empty over Europe showing us very clearly that even if we don't fly, there will still be flights moving around because the forces that are moving them around are forces and incitements that are also other things than human desire for flight. And I think kind of intercepting those uh, incitements is much, much more difficult. Even as a swarm of human beings, there are powers that be that are much larger. And I think intercepting those powers, it's not clear at all where I find myself to make the largest impact. But Melissa, is there a way in which what you are playing for us here with the queen bees fighting. Is there something here about when we listen to this, on the one hand, we get enchanted because we begin to pay attention to this background and of all this care work that makes it possible for us to sit here. And the more we pay attention to that, the more enchanted we get about 
how rich the world and how manifold and how enchanted the world is. But is there then also a way in which that enchantment decenters the human and the human disappears from a kind of political action-oriented perspective? Oh, I don't think so. I think, I, I know. No, I, I think that it gives a very kind of a voice which we can open up space to hold and to take care of. I think it makes us completely question the practices and, you know, the questions we ask and how we're designing spaces for these creatures that are there. I think you hear a rhythm, you notice another rhythm of everyday life. We're full of rhythms, you know, we're, we're moving around, we have all these rhythms. You're turning perspective to this other rhythm and actually you can see, well, how can I push back or how can I repattern to, you know, bring, maybe it's a foregrounding thing, but it's certainly about bringing a voice or another register into political thought. And we have to fight for all these creatures and they're They're fantastic. So if you want something, I mean, it absolutely changes all these ideas of, you know, animals being dumb and insects being dumb. I mean, it, we all know this. We're reading these books, you know, we have to give these creatures and humans ways of being witnessed, I think. And I think that's political. Thank you. But this was my a bit clumsy way of trying to get us to the third theme, which was about humanism and what humanism might mean today. And I want to address the question first to you, Emma, and then we can sort of like work from here. I mean, one of the things that Jane has been so famous for and that the contribution she has made is this account of agency as something that is more than human. And today, in Jane's talk, one of the lines that stood out here was the Thoreau line, man is but a mass of thorn and clay. Yeah, I mean, I, it resonated with me, and <laughs> maybe that says more about me than about Thoreau, I don't know. But anyway, it, to me, again, this is a kind of way of sort of like describing the human as something that's linked or maybe even just a part of something that is actually more than human or even non-human, right? And philosophically speaking, that makes perfect sense, right? Or at least it does uh, to many of us. Uh, politically speaking, however, people start to begin to worry that when you do that philosophical, theoretical move, you lose an analysis of power that can differentiate between all these unequal accesses to power, particularly the kind of unequal accesses to power that men and women have, and that sort of like speaks to your own interest. You have invoked it several times this evening in feminist economy. So I'm just wondering, are there ways in which you would amend this vision or this conceptualization of agency in order to fit it better into a feminist approach to justice and politics? Yeah, I think this is really the difficult question for me, and I really also want to ask you, Jane, how you relate to this. But as I was reading Vibrant Matter, I was thinking about, obviously I was reading it and thinking, I agree with this. I feel a visceral response to this book that this seems right to me. But then, of course, as a feminist, I'm obsessed with power. You know, we can't think about anything else. And I think that I also had this sneaking sense of thinking, I apologize if this is a banal reading of your book, but if it was not also a cop-out for humans to start talking about ourselves as nature after centuries of our destructing, mechanizing, objectifying, violating entire swaths of nature, killing thousands upon thousands of species, suddenly saying, we're nature too, <laughs> don't you forget it, that can you abuse power in such a systemic way and then just remove yourself from that power And you address it, of course, at the end of the book a little bit. Or do we also have to have a relationship with what was traditionally called nature or traditionally perceived as non-living material or, you know, non-human material, where we also acknowledge the historic violence that we have wrought, yet still try to enter into a new relationship? 
I guess what I'm asking is, do there need to be reparations for historic violence? Or can we enter into a new relationship relatively seamlessly and then um, historic, like, and then try to repair from there? I don't think I have an answer. I'm not even sure it's a criticism. I think it's maybe just a question. Yeah, it's the question. It's a really hard question. You're pointing to dominate power as domination. And vibrant matter is not good on that. It's not about that. It's about power as vitality and power as capacity for producing effects. And so I think all things have that to different degrees. So I guess what I would say about that is, how do you reduce power as domination? And exposing the history of it is one way. It's not working that well. That still has some efficacy. But enhancing a sense of the vitality of even the victims and of when you think about the physical world, about climate change, now it's nature blowback on us. So I think I don't really know what to do about that. I don't really know what is the best way to reduce domination. I was experimenting with the idea that to enhance a sense of vitality might have some effect on that. Maybe it won't. Maybe domination has a trajectory that's a parallel line with the trajectory of recognition of vitality. And maybe the more you see the physical world as vital, the more human beings are going to hype up their domination efforts to try to use geoengineering or whatever to fix, fix climate change. So I'm not sure about that. This was an experimental thing to see whether if you could enhance your sensitivity to the richness in the way that Melissa is talking about, that maybe that would deflect some of the energy from domination. There's going to be plenty of energy left over for domination. And I don't want to say that this is the answer to that. I think it does help. It helps a little. I think it certainly does help. I think I was just sitting with the book and being like, this is so intuitively right. But I guess maybe that's just like the activist in me or something like that, but I thought... But what if in terms of efficacy... I'm not saying this is true, but what <laughs> if in terms of efficacy of an activist, if you really enhanced a sensitivity to the vitality and a connectedness with it, that's an activist effort alongside the expose of domination and the punish... But I don't even think punishment works that well. The punishment of the dominator doesn't seem to work that well. So maybe the enhancement of the sensitivity to vitality could be... But it also is about a change in how the dominator sees itself, right? Or himself or herself or themselves. That recasting the relationship with the non-human is not only about how we see them, but also it needs to... Yeah. yeah. And the other thing that I want to say is that there's different levels we're talking about here. We're talking at the level of sensibility shifting. We're talking about the level of who do you vote for for the next election. You know, so those are different levels. And it's probably the case that all this stuff that we're talking about here today works at some indirect but not unpowerful level of shift. But then sometimes you need more direct action because you're working in a different realm. So I wouldn't want to conflate the sort of experimental thinking and feeling stuff that we're all talking about, we're all like enacting here. I wouldn't want to conflate that. That has efficacy. And then there's another kind of efficacy that you might want to work out at a different temporality and a different scale. So I wouldn't want to say that the electoral politics and social movement level, I don't think that's the same as this other stuff. 
of operativity or it's the yeah. problem, isn't it? We don't. There's not the same kind of level of of force and movement in this kind of political social sphere. And we also know that dominance, how it reacts in this, these very violent, loud ways. I mean, right. Trump is the best example of that. I mean, this, this absolute violence and how that's expressed through through sort of domination. That's not what we're talking about here, but in some ways we are. There's this wonderful story by Vincent de Pre, who's a philosopher of science, and she says, "Well, it's 4 a.m. and the blackbird started singing, and we all know that, right? We've all woken up at 4 a.m. The blackbird starts singing, and it's the sign of spring, and it's the sign of the seasons coming. It's the sign of flourishing that will arrive. And the blackbird's song is absolutely gorgeous. It's absolutely full of pleasure. It's singing with all its heart, with all its soul, just to sing. That's what it does. This is what the blackbird does." And uh, Vincienne Dupré is listening to this song, and she says, "Wow, in this song, something has importance above else. Nothing is more important than the fact of singing. All your heart with all your pleasure." And she says, "What do I do with that?" Well, she says, "This experience, a sonic experience, a performative experience, a personal experience, an experience of pleasure. The blackbird reminded me of, or rather, made me experience me as a human in its way." Was the extent to which it is important that things have importance, and that we humans should be there, available to receive and hear things, stubborn insistence on having importance. That we humans should be there, available to receive and hear things, stubborn insistence on having importance, and that we should be responsible for welcoming these importances and not be the originator of the importance. Get out of the way, right? These stubborn things that are really important to other creatures that do not express themselves in the same way that I think we should, or that a dominator thinks we should. I just wanted to kind of bring that in. How being infected enhances a body's power to affect the scene. This is one of your quotes. How being affected paradoxically enhances the body's power to affect the scene. Sometimes the power is to get out of the way, or open up that space, or do something differently. And I think that's what we're talking about. Also, in relationship to these really, really big structures, the infrastructures, the systems of thinking, we want to impact that. We want to make sure that we get out of the way of some of these other creatures' voices. So that was kind of my last thought. And change the narrative, obviously. I almost feel like we want to end here, but before we do that, maybe Jane, you can speak to that example and maybe elaborate a little bit because you have been very careful in sort of like not giving up on something like the human. I think sometimes you are very careful not to use the post-humanism discourse, and you talk about sometimes anthropomorphizing certain types of non-human experiences and so forth. So there's always a way in which the human is decentered, but always is present in your work. I think I might be tired because I'm a physical creature. People are material too. They're a characteristic combination of materials, which gives us characteristic capacities and strengths and weaknesses. And one of our strengths is perhaps to use the thought of getting out of the way to actually get out of the way. Even though my whole talk at the beginning was that the thought that you need to get out of the way is not enough to move yourself out of the way, but it's not nothing either, you know. I think it's about so we were talking about feminisms and humanisms or humanities. What I meant by that story is that we have this song. So first of all, you have the idea of singing just to sing. 
it's incredibly pleasurable, and it's, this is an interesting kind of desire notion, singing just to sing. This already is full of energy, so we can take from this blackbird yes. singing to sing. Wow, okay, this like inspires me. Dance to dance, you know, dance to move against, dance to do whatever, and this is what artists help us do. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is rewriting our narratives. So we can take birds, and we can, we, but bees are more fun. Humans have always thought of themselves as bees, and bees, and bees are humans. You know, the 19th century has the worker bee, for instance. And when we hear these sounds, we hear these bees buzzing or do 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 do. We we hear them playing out another resonance, another way of interacting, which is pleasurable, which is sensual, which is full of texture and interactions that calls us to write the narrative in a different way, that calls us to think about these stories in a different way. So by giving attention to what these creatures are doing and standing back and not trying to say I'm going to explain it or I'm going to control it, then I think we can get renewed energy. And that's what I was trying to say. And then rewrite some of these things, and then try to take it into contact with our human processes and what we have to do to carve out spaces for ecosystems and urban planning and all of that. How are non-humans asserting their own agency? That's kind of what I'm talking about. <sighs> I, no, I, I have nothing. I was just thinking about mushrooms. <laughs> and and uh, what, what you just did just, just now, I think, is exactly what mushrooms do. So if there's a big fat mushroom and a small skinny one, the big fat one will have much better ways of absorbing nutrition and water, but it will notice that there is a struggling mushroom of the same species right next to it, and it will absolve itself of nutrients and water to give it to the other person. And I think this is the difficult thing with humans, right? Is our ability to think and not do and think and do what's actually hindering us, whereas the mushroom doesn't think, it just subsumes the power over. Yeah, but maybe when you see the, when you think about whether you experience the blackbird singing for its own sake, what you're doing is it's resonating or it's sort of drawing forward your own like love to be alive for the sake of aliveness. And so it's not like you're trying to imitate it. It's the kind of unconscious resonance between those two things. Yeah. Yeah, it's non-productive activity. Like it's yeah. non. Yeah. Yeah, it's non-priced activity. Non-priced activity. I have the feeling that we could go on for the next two hours. <laughs> we have talked about ecological actions, and I don't know if we have a grand conclusion, but here are some of the thoughts that I have taken with me. That ecological actions is something about connecting knowing uh, with doing. Uh, ecological actions has something to do with finding enchantments in the world, including listening to bees and to find a joy and fascination in mushrooms and in blackbirds and so forth. And then it is, in a curious way, uh, an attempt to get out of the way without disappearing. And that that is what ecological actions might look like today. I'll leave it there. Let's thank the three uh, panelists. <laughs>